The Photo Vault. A journey into vernacular photography, archives and photo books. Hi and welcome to this episode of The Photo Vault. It is not easy to combine the world of universities and research, academia, with that of a popular audience. I had the pleasure to get to know Annabella Pollen, a British professor on visual and material culture, who is doing exactly that. She is deeply engaged in her research on visual culture with focus on everyday images, people's images, and has with publications such as Mass Photography, Collective Histories of Everyday Life, shed light on forgotten aspects of image making. She also authored books such as Nudism in a Cold Climate, The Visual Culture of Naturalist in Mid-20th Century Britain, and other titles we will discuss in this conversation. At the end of the podcast, at about minute 42, you will find a brief summary of what she said. Annabelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, I want to dive right into it, and uh, I want to know what it's like being passionate and working with rejects. Because oh. <laughs> that's sort of what it seems to me is, uh, is definitely one of your key interests is, is uh, yeah, rejects. I like your characterization. <laughs> I've never thought about that. Yeah, I do think actually I am a historian of things that I think are overlooked because I think there's a certain energy in uh, championing the underdog, perhaps, mm -hmm. and finding areas that have been neglected, wrongfully neglected, I think. So, um, yeah, I've, I have researched rejected cultures in a few different ways. Perhaps the most obvious way was when I did a very big research project about a photographic archive that was all taken on one day in Britain in 1987, And it was um, a charity fundraising project which aimed to raise money for cancer charities. And the idea was that everyone in Britain would take one photograph on this day and together that would form a family album of the nation. And at the time, that was quite an innovative thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's since been reproduced many, many times, particularly with the coming of digital media and networked photography. But at the time in 1987, we're talking about print photographs. And the people who set up the project were not photography specialists. They were charity fundraisers principally, but they saw the popularity of photography as a way of kind of developing an archive. And what actually happened was they got professional photographers to select 350 of the best photographs, in their opinion, which went into a book in a 24-hour format. And that raised a lot of money for charity through sales. But that meant that the huge amount of photographs that they generated, in fact, they generated around 55,000 rather than 55 million, which is what they were hoping. But still, 55,000 is not an insignificant amount. And um, that meant that the vast majority of photographs in that archive were the rejected ones that were considered not good enough for publication, not good enough to win a prize, not awarded in any way. So they'd actually structured a project where they'd ended up with the rejected photographs being the majority. And um, in any photographic competition, usually the winners are celebrated and the rest are put in the bin. Mm -hmm. But the scale of that project was such, and the fact that it had that one-day time frame, that some of the organisers thought, actually, this could make something really interesting that historians of the future will fall over themselves about because it 
doesn't exist. So they imagine different periods in history where imagine, you know, you could go back to ancient Rome and just kind of immerse yourself in one day. They thought, well, we've got to this here in 1987. People in the future will be able to look back and experience all aspects of the 14th of August 1987 in Britain from the beginning, you know, one minute past midnight till 11.59. So, yeah, I started working with that collection and the rejects became the most interesting to me because the people who were judging them were looking for all the kind of qualities that characterised the good photo. So that might mean a strong centre of interest, you know, things being appropriately framed. Um, Although it wasn't a technical competition, it was about um, everyday life and ordinary people's experience, they were still selecting for the publication ones that were sharp and bright and clear and told a story. And actually the majority of photographs in that archive were not bright or clear or told a story because they were incoherent, they were... The subject was invisible, it was too close or too far away, or flash had bounced off someone's face, or they had red eyes, or their head was cut off, or there was a finger in the frame. And I got really interested in those because um, although you can find the odd one here and there at a flea market, and you can build that into a collection, as, as many collectors have done and I've done, to see that en masse, to see this kind of cross-section of photographic experience, and to see the bad photo, I suppose, by the thousands, I found that really, really interesting. And I found it really interesting. Why would you enter a bad photo to a photographic competition? Yeah. So that fascinated me as well. And I did a, a, a big research project around that, which took me three or four years. And it was the basis for my PhD and for my first academic book. And I interviewed lots of people about the photographs that they'd taken. And I interviewed the judges about what they were looking for and the publishers about what they put in the book and the archivists about why they were keeping this material. And I felt like, um, you know, the photograph became this kind of carrier for meaning where the meaning was not necessarily in the visible image. It was in the stories around it. It was actually outside of the frame a lot of the time. So the photograph was used to enable people to participate, for example, in a collective photographic project. It enabled them to give money to charity. It enabled them to kind of build a community. Um, So it actually had loads of kind of extra photographic functions, if you like. And I think um, in a conventional photographic competition, where it's about technical perfection and where only the winners are celebrated, you just wouldn't have gathered those. You wouldn't have been able to gather those stories. The vast majority of people hadn't entered a photographic competition before. They'd never thought of it. They weren't that type of person. And in fact, they tended to be women. And at the time in the 1980s, um, photographic competitions in the technical sense were very dominated by serious photographic men with big lenses and technical equipment and interest in the sort of technical side of photography. And women, by and large, were in a minority in those cultures And um, many women were sort of doing it as part of their charitable practice. They were doing it because somebody in their family had had cancer or they'd had cancer. So it became part of a kind of family photographic practice, which is an area that's very dominated by women. So um, that was where the reject photograph enabled me to kind of spiral out into loads of other things where value judgment was only part of the story. And the sort of good and bad photograph was, you know, enabled me to kind of open lots of other doors. 
Well, the interesting thing is that with these photographs that are probably selected and the best photographs, it's probably what's in the photograph, right? Yeah. Versus you working with the rejects, it's, as you say, it's more what surrounds the photograph. Yeah. Sort of what's hidden and what, what we have to find. Yeah. And what's interesting to me also is that when you have a selection, you have a competition, I mean, and you, and you select for the idea of this is Britain today in this specific time, so on, so on, so on, or for any place uh, for that matter. That's very conventional history telling that we, we make a selection, a very specific selection, the best of the best. And that's what we have done throughout history. You know? we, we, create, yeah. we, we select the best or what we think the best is at the time. And, and we tell our history in that way. Yeah, history is always written by the winners, as the famous phrase goes. But um, in applying those value judgments, you necessarily create a second body of material. And, you know, for example, in the art world, in the selection of artwork for famous salons in the 19th century, it created an area where refused artists, rejected artists could go and create their kind of fringe, the salon of the refused and I've always been interested in ha how that creates kind of first and second order or winners and losers. And it necessarily leads me to look at what's, what the losers are mm -hmm. doing, because I think that makes a kind of counterculture to the dominant narrative. And so anything that kind of um, makes norms visible, I think is really, really interesting. In photography, lots of photographic norms are unwritten, Obviously, there's a lot of rule books and guidebooks and instruction manuals in photography, but um, things like photographic custom and photographic etiquette, um, you know, why take a photograph at a wedding and not at a funeral? Why take a photograph of the smiling rather than the crying, the, you know, the, the happy relationship rather than the divorce um, event? You know, those kinds of things, they're not really scripted in very explicit ways. But in looking at what's missing and in looking at what gets rejected, you start to see those norms become visible. Mm -hmm. And I really like the way that that opens up a kind of, yeah, a counter-narrative in photography, I think. Well, also the interesting part is that that counter-narrative is actually bigger than the narrative. Yeah. I mean, it, the ruling minority for history, for anything, is, is, is always smaller. It's a minority, actually. So the majority, actually, that hardly ever has a voice comes out in these rejects. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways, that's the sort of thesis, I suppose, of my first book, which is that this is a, a mass practice. You know, if we look at this body of rejected photographs, if we look at the mass experience, rather than the, the small amount of photographs that get kind of selected for publication, that get selected for exhibition, and the small amount of people who get to enter the sort of elite pantheon of artists, if we look at mass practice, you start to see the majority experience and that is something that for a long time was thought to be too ordinary too everyday to capture and to visualize that was the boring stuff and uh, you know it was the exceptional stuff that was worthy of note but um, I think if you're interested in histories of everyday life histories of ordinary people you have to look at those kind of mass and majority practices. Yeah, and for me who works also outside of Europe a lot we do have these practices in other countries that go outside of these norms, like we have funeral photographs, a strong practice, let's say in India or Pakistan, where it's part of my, my archives and collection. And when I bring these into discussions, it's, it's always interesting to see actually that, yeah, there is a norm that I didn't even think about, but by bringing these images into another context, you, you realize the norm. Yeah, a lot of my um, research has been very British English, in fact, 
and quite localized cultures within that. So yeah, it is always good to kind of see those contrasts because what is the norm in one place is often very, very localized, very specific. And you only have to go slightly outside those national borders or outside of the contemporary moment to feel those disruptions from history and to feel those disruptions from other perspectives from elsewhere. So yeah, it's very important to mention that. And where your work um, it's more targeted towards, you would say, an academic sphere? Or do you feel there is an impact also in how, let's say, photographers, practitioners um, view the mass production with, with, with work and thoughts that you produce? I think with that first study, I was attempting and perhaps succeeding <laughs> to make a contribution <laughs> to photographic theory because I was very frustrated by the discussions that I was reading at the time that um, the analysis of photographic practice in the mass, the amateur photographer, they were just dismissed out of hand by very elitist academic scholars. So I felt that this really needed shifting. And I also felt that a lot of assumptions were being made about mass practice based on looking at tiny samples, you know, extrapolating from perhaps the family album, which is a very specific and interesting form, but it's a very narrow form. So um, I tried to look at a wider frame. I tried to kind of theorize from it and I tried to kind of make an intervention into sort of photographic debate. So I think in that sense, that was that text was really aimed at academic readers and, you know, the academic community. Um, but I very quickly realized that many of the people who I was writing about and indeed writing for in some ways, because I was trying to um, give them a voice and have them taken seriously in the academy. Um, they were not likely to be the readers of the book because it was quite a technical, theoretical text. And um, I've always had a strong desire in doing these kinds of histories to reach the people that I'm researching because otherwise there's a terrible divide between um, the researcher and you know the researched. And I also have a very strong sympathy with people who are outside the academic community as well because it's some it's a community that I came to quite late um, I didn't start my studies until I was 28 I was a mature student I came late and then I went kind of headlong into it straight after my undergraduate degree I started teaching but I've always felt a strong sympathy to the very interesting and interested people who are outside this tiny world of academia. And so some of my other studies have attempted to do historical research, but frame it in a language that doesn't require you to have an academic degree. And I've tried to kind of use a journalistic tone of voice in some of my subsequent publications um, to try and kind of speak more widely and to, and to be more sort of accessible. Because I think, you know, there's no point in doing this analysis if nobody reads it. Yeah. No, no. And uh, what's interesting, I, mean, I was just thinking about this, this right now, is that even your analysis of what is the norm in photography, how that has been enforced through, uh, I mean, you have a, a collection of even uh, stickers and, and instructions by, by, by Boots and other uh, uh, developing studios uh, that sort of guide us. And then, of course, there's a ton of manuals guide us on, on how we should take a picture and how that norm is clearly a part of how the norm of society is also being structured. And that revealing of that norm goes along 
with many other fields where we people start to analyze like hey uh, what's wrong with our society how have we been shifted how have we been shaped whether this is in the in in in, in industries in inequality in in any kind of form so so that work that you're presenting and 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 the thoughts you have around that goes with so many other fields and i think it's sort of in the same wave or movement almost yeah i think the photographic manual even though it's thought of as being this really uninteresting thing you know it's it's often something that you find in secondhand shops selling for a few pennies 50 pence or pounds or so um or you know they, they're thrown away they're the kinds of things that you find in dumpsters and skips and so on because an out-of-date manual doesn't seem to be useful. It's like an out-of-date restaurant guide. You know, you, if the restaurants aren't there, unless you've got a time machine, that book is is obsolete. But actually, I think the out-of-date manual, the historic photographic manual, tells you so much about visual norms, about styles and tastes, um, especially about behaviour, because I think any instruction manual is also possible to read as an etiquette guide. It's a guide on how to behave because it's telling you what's right and what's wrong. And it's doing it in the frame of an image. You know, this subject is suitable and this subject is not. That is reinforcing social norms. And also, you know, the illustrations, who gets to hold the camera, who is depicted in front of the camera in those illustrations. Those, for example, are highly gendered, highly racialized. Ideas of what is normal and what is right are absolutely embedded in wider cultural values. So I I like those historic manuals because they show how we were taught to see shaped, you know, how the world looked and uh, how those norms were kind of reproduced visually. So, um, yeah, I've been collecting these for quite some time and I know people think, why are you collecting these? They're really boring. <laughs> and in fact, also not being a photographer, I find them quite useful for understanding uh-huh. the technicalities of photography. But um, yeah, I find them really interesting and I find them very accessible because when they're only a few pence each, you can buy them very, very easily. I've got literally hundreds of these manuals and I find they give a sort of guide to kind of social behaviour in the 20th century. Yeah, so you can kind of read them against the grain. That's obviously not how they were intended at the time, but that's been made visible as they've gone out of style. But that's also, I mean, it's also my interest is to to look at a a very specific practice or a very specific part of society, and then that can tell us so much about society at large because it is uh, it can be used as an amplifier to understand norms, structures, and the way history has been formed. Yeah, and that's yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, and I think it's the overlooked things. I suppose one of the reasons I'm interested in ephemera, you know, paper ephemera, the photo wallet, why that's become something that's been interesting to me, is things that are not designed to last, things that are only meant to pass quickly and they perform a functional task, like a paper bag that some photos come delivered in. You know, that is an inconsequential part of culture. But because it's not designed to last, there's, you know, a certain kind of... um, yeah, a certain kind of norm sort of passes passes through us. And I think ephemera, packaging, things that change quite quickly and things that are meant to just serve a kind of functional purpose rather than be made for historical posterity, have that kind of cultural um, moment inscripted in them really kind of clearly and deeply. And again, they're very accessible. They're everywhere. 
yeah. if you go looking for them and they're thrown away because people don't value them. They think that they're uninteresting. And it's, again, the sort of the culture of the rejects that's informing my collecting practice there because um, a lot of the photo wallets that I've collected from photo processing companies have come from end-of-life house clearances. They've literally been kind of picked out of the rubbish um, and if I have bought them secondhand, they very rarely cost more than a pound or two because they're they're not something that has any kind of intrinsic sort of financial value. But um, their cultural value, I think, is really high because of their sort of immediate and passing nature. Yeah. And you put it in a book I have actually in front of me. Yeah. More than a snapshot, a visual history of photo wallets. It's a it's a beautiful that's a very accessible format like it's it's a beautiful yeah and that was I suppose a way of me trying to put into action that um, kind of writing that I was talking about because I'd done some serious scholarly research looking at the history of photo processing in Britain um, looking at the high street chemist called Boots which is the main developing and printing company. Um, in 20th century Britain, it's where people took their rolls of film to be developed and um, where they had their, where they went to get their prints um, and where they went to collect their prints. So um, I'd done some research in their archive. That was part of my kind of wider practice of trying to excavate the history of popular photography in Britain. But I'd written that in a scholarly account for um, an encyclopedia. Again, it's just, you know, it's something that... People interested in photographic history and photographic theory will be able to access. But the book is, you know, the book that it appears in, I think, is about £150. Yeah. <laughs> it's designed to be sold to yeah. academic libraries. And I wanted to do something with that thinking that reached the very people who were using those services. Um, because, in fact, you know, in Britain, um, everyone used those photographic services. Everyone had those photographic wallets. And, in fact, many people still have them because... Unless you've selected a photograph for the family album or for the mantelpiece, you may well still keep your photographs in those photo wallets that the processor passed them on to you. So people still have them under beds, on top of wardrobes and and so on. So this was a very different kind of take on that same idea, but with a publisher who was able to produce it for £12. It's fantastic, yeah. And it's all my own collection. So over the years, I've developed a collection of Hundreds and hundreds of these, maybe a thousand. Looking at Annabella's book, I started to explore my collection of these photo wallets and was amazed to see the wealth of norms and stereotypes printed on them. And as I collect around the world, that could be applied to any region and market. After that, I had to say I was curious to see some TV ads as well. Kodak Film for the times of your life. Obviously, it was all about the harmonious cookie-cutter family. And Annabella points that out nicely. Yeah, the norms actually that have changed as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I really like in the early days the way that women were depicted with cameras. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the famous Kodak girl was um, a brand character marketed by Kodak in a range of forms, not just on a photo wallet. You know, there were cardboard cutouts in shops There were huge posters and Kodak um, employed the most famous and the most skilled illustrators of the day to illustrate this character who was a young, fashionable, outdoorsy, well-off woman who would take her camera 
out in a motor car at the start of the century. Sometimes she would even be seen on skis. Um, sometimes mm. she would be, um, you know, on mountain tops. She was this kind of active sort of model to learn from as well as, you know, someone to kind of aspire to. So she showed the sort of photographs that were suitable. She showed how to hold a camera. Right. Um, obviously, she's highly idealised. She's always very fashionable. Yeah, she's also a good mother, as we can see here. Yes, yeah, very yes. important. She, yes, indeed. And she always wears um, a striped dress, or almost always has this mm-hmm. blue and white striped dress that was this kind of recognisable brand character. But um, that's really interesting at a time when um, you know photography was being marketed particularly to women. Women were seen to be the main users of these um, high street services. Women were perceived to be less interested in the technical side of printing and developing themselves and more likely to want to take photographs of friends and family and thereby just to kind of get their photographs quickly and not have their own dark They're just amateurs. Yeah, exactly. So in a way, it was forming a set of gender norms that have shifted. This Brownie Starmite camera, for example, is the handiest flash camera Kodak ever made. And it lets you get good pictures the first time, with no instruction at all. (laughs) No instruction at all. Needless to say, in the advert here, the man winks at the camera, suggesting that his wife can finally take a good picture due to the great simplicity of the tool. A really insightful additional listen to what Annabella has said here is the podcast Glass Eye, a podcast on visual culture from South Asia. Their first episode is on Kodak women in India. It's a beautiful episode to listen to, very much in line with our explorations. I was curious what else there was for Annabella to say and read in these photo wallets. Um, and there are other things in there that I think, you know, are, are norms about relationships. There's always nuclear families, always heterosexual couples, And in all of those photo wallets, and I have around a thousand examples, I don't think there is any skin tone that is not white. There's the occasional one where you think, well, maybe, maybe that could be interpreted, but the, maybe, yeah. the white norm is really, really dominant. And I found that really intriguing and troubling, especially in late 20th century Britain, when a lot of migrant laborers, so... Asian, Afro-Caribbean workers in Britain were being treated despicably in the very photo processing factories that were producing the prints that then got put in these envelopes with, you know, smiling white families on the front. And there were people who were working in factories producing those who couldn't tend to their own children because they had, you know, enforced overtime and, Mm. you know, restrictive hours. And so there's there's something that's kind of behind the scenes of these photographic ideals that is very troubling obviously they're meant to be these beautiful um beautiful visual forms and they are a lot of the time there's you know happy smiling people and laughing babies absolutely (laughs) loving partners and (laughs) yeah the picture that you mentioned when you say loving partners is actually a guy leering at a woman's cleavage i think take a second look (laughs) it's a very sexualized (laughs) 1970s image the bikini's got very very small (laughs) it's a very small bikini with a big decollete yeah Pointed at a man's face. (laughs) (laughs) Or the man's face at it, yeah. Absolutely. Well, what do you think, I mean, the producers of these materials would, uh, you know, would would say to that that criticism? 
Now. Well, I mean, interestingly, yeah, it's not often that you can find the voices yeah. of those that produce the material. Sometimes you have to kind of go behind the scenes into the company archives and so on. And um, there is an account that I found of a professional photographer who was employed by Kodak. And she was employed to take the kinds of family photographs that she thought people might want to take, but perhaps not capable of taking yeah. because they didn't have the high specification equipment and the technical training. So she would take the kind of ideal stylized family portraits and that would go on the front of the wallet. And then the idea was that the amateur practitioner would think, oh, I'd like to take a photograph like that. And they would go out and with their perhaps cheaper and simpler cameras and their one roll of film a year, because that was the norm for most of the 20th century, was to just take one roll of film, holidays and high days and so on. They might go on holiday and think, ah, oh, that's what a good holiday photo looks like. That's what a happy family should look like. And somehow they would have internalised that model and would try and reproduce it. So I found that really interesting because that was so prescriptive um, and I think with Boots the Chemist and with other high street chemists in other places, um, the idea of prescription is really built into the form because they're dispensing medicine, but they're also dispensing kind of photographic first aid. They're giving photographic advice. And the envelopes in which you would go and get your tablets are actually really similar to the paper envelopes in which you would go and get your photographs. So it seems to me that dispensing and developing and pharmacy and photography <laughs> sort of all a, kind of gather uh, around this idea of prescription, uh-huh. you know, telling you how to do it, telling you what's good for you. Yeah, yeah. You get norms get prescribed. Yeah. <laughs> so, but th- there are any voices from the producers of these materials that we can actually hear from uh, at that time? Like the sort of intention, I mean, I'm sure this was clearly, there was an intention behind it. I mean, this was scripted. There were, there must yeah. have been large scale meetings on, you know, how yeah. we persuade our customers who is our customer i mean do we talk to our customer etc etc yeah so that's what i found in the boots the chemist archive because you know they had marketing teams and these were you know big budget um areas of development so they did meet and take seriously everything about the packaging everything about the kind of language that was used everything about the way that sales should be promoted Someone cares. I just had to put that in there. For the research on this conversation, I started to look at all these TV ads from the 80s and 90s. My God, that happy family image and the innocence to stereotypical consumption is mind-blowing. I assume it's the same today, just that the adverts we consume the most right now, let's say on YouTube or Instagram, are much less produced in stereotypes maybe more loose or relaxed, so we don't see them as such. Or maybe we don't have the distance yet to understand our current norms. Well, back to Annabella. So I think seeing that behind-the-scenes discussion about photography is really illuminating, because I think if you just look at the photograph and you think of the photograph as being this kind of autonomous product produced by a photographer and their camera, that gives you a certain amount of information sometimes loads of information, but not the whole story because everything from the kinds of film that they're using, the kinds of developing that they're receiving, the kind of print product that comes out, the kind of norms that are being used to kind of promote and, um, you know, advertise those um, 
the technology and the and the services that is all going on behind the scenes and you're not meant to know any of it it's meant to be completely invisible you're just meant to kind of press your button drop your film off and magically get a set of prints produced but there's a whole set of mechanics meetings marketing teams behind um, those processes and right from the you know late 19th century Kodak's famous phrase you press the button we do the rest the rest is concealed but the rest is massive yeah Yeah. the rest is you know a huge you know multi-billion pound multi-billion dollar industry Um, and in fact that's where the profit lay is in developing and printing because of course film is really really cheap you know it's it's this really really cheap thing to produce and a camera you buy once yeah yeah so all the money was made in developing and printing it's that kind of business model of razors and blades you know the camera is cheap but the throughput is expensive the the film is expensive the developing is expensive and i mean obviously looking at these sort of past examples and analyzing the past and having access to even the ideas on how these advertisement materials were conceived i mean teaches us so much about what's going on today because nothing has changed Yeah, and I think we carry those norms with us. They're things that we've internalized across generations. Of course, you know, now photography has got a different business model. Photography's got a different structure. And those chemists and those developing and printing services, in many cases, including Kodak, have gone bust. But they set the template, and that template endures in lots of ways about what is a suitable photographic subject you know, when to get your camera out and when not to get it out and so on. So I think we live with the legacy of those norms. And the more they're made visible to us, the more we can critique them and, you know, shift against them and, and you know, think differently. But I think we do live with those, um, those historical practices and sometimes in quite literal ways. Because every time I've given a talk about photo wallets, people have said, oh, yeah, I've got them under the bed. You know, there's a... This, they're still in people's homes. And um, yeah, with the, with the younger generation of practitioners as well, you know, who are newly sort of discovering, developing and printing, they find it really interesting because they find that the kinds of things, you know, new young film enthusiasts, for example, the kinds of things that they photograph with their film camera, um, as opposed to the kinds of things they photograph on their smartphone, are still informed by some of these things. And they've never kind of brought them to light they'd never thought about those structures behind the frame before what i find you can interest a younger audience with is also these kind of accessories paraphernalia around photographs which are also vernacular in a way because they're tangible yeah and they're not as the digital world is just uh, within your smartphone but it's a tangible object so the history of that object once it once it's contextualized actually really draws people in because again they're they're made beautiful They have a specific aesthetic of the style. I mean, if you look at the ones from the 20s and 30s, I mean, to our now distant eye, they're, they're stunning objects. So, so I feel like within, within, these, within these objects, we can create a huge amount of interest, actually, with a younger generation. Yeah, I mean, there's Kodak sweatshirts and bags and, you know, there's yeah, a whole yeah. load of kind of Kodak merchandise and fashion gear that you can get now and um yeah i think that you know the idea of the tangible photograph the material photograph the analog photograph has got invested now with all sorts of meanings and values that it didn't have when it was the norm we just did it that was the medium that was how you got your photographs you didn't think about all these kind of 
values about materiality and tangibility because that was just what photographs were but a bit like with vinyl records where the very fact that they're now called vinyls you know the material that they're made from has been really emphasized in enthusiasts young enthusiasts of analog photography they find the value in the thing that you can hold in the thing that you can kind of keep in your hands you know the thing that you can kind of fold and cut up and all these kind of material aspects that you don't have with the sort of seemingly intangible digital photographs. So I think it's it's ascribed a lot of kinds of social and cultural values to that photograph that and that form of photography that maybe it didn't have at the time. But um, that's really interesting because it kind of casts a new light and a, and a new, I suppose, a new collectability on this material as well. It seems finite, it seems rare, mm-hmm. it seems... Um, precious and it seems authentic when there's not much of it and um, you know when we live in an age of photographic ubiquity and the ease of production these things that are kind of burdensome and slow become inscribed with all sorts of kind of new moral values positive moral values and what is it that sort of drives your minds today what are you working on if, if you can talk about that or if there's something you can sort of yeah. bring into thought well I have lots of things on the boil I always have lots of things on the go and I keep them kind of all bubbling away mm-hmm. um, I'm still going to well I, in fact I'm still collecting photo wallets I should stop having done the book but I'm still going to flea markets all the time buying things that interest me um, sometimes they turn into a project sometimes they're just something that goes on the shelf um, I'm, I've been collecting all sorts of things for a very long time and, and some of them might end up in um, in books and exhibitions and some of them might not but um, one that I'm collecting quite strategically at the moment and thinking about quite um, centrally is about how children have developed as photographers since the late 19th century to the present day and I think that's because I have perceived in kind of current media discourses a lot of anxiety about children on smartphones children taking selfies, children's self-image being put at risk by the amount of photographs that they take on a daily basis, children engaged in social media as a new thing that, um, you know, is a kind of untested territory. And I think some of those anxieties, you know, some of those anxieties about what it's doing to children's mental health, I don't mean to dismiss but I've been very interested in how this category of the child as media producer seems to be a new phenomenon, but um, actually has this very long history. So um, I'm currently working on a big project that's going to result in a book and an exhibition eventually, but it's in a formative stage, which is to write and map that long history of how children have been developed and addressed as camera consumers. So that goes back to the late 19th century where elite boys schools in Britain for example had camera clubs and photographic Mm. societies and um, you know the young gentlemen amateur photographers of the future were being nurtured and developed in formal ways in a school environment through to the box brownie camera and Kodak's promotion of photography to children um, through to advice manuals for children the use of children in advertising often children were depicted holding cameras because it was show how simple photography was to do. Even a child could do it. Um, and I'm looking at, later in the century, competitions for children, 
more radical photo endeavours for children as part of kind of children's liberation movements where radical socialists are kind of putting cameras into the hands of children, giving them means of production, making them kind of media critics and media producers. Um, yeah, I mean, it, every time I start to think about this, the subject becomes possibly expanded. <laughs> okay, larger and larger. And so I'll have to kind of divvy it up. But um, I've become very fascinated in that kind of unwritten history. And it's part of thinking about amateur photographic practice because the child is the ultimate amateur in a way. They're outside of um, business relationships because since the mid 19th century children have been removed from the labour market, at least in Britain. And um, it's also something where the child is perceived to be the most novice of novices. They are very literally a beginner. So I've been looking at cameras aimed at children. I've been collecting people's first camera experiences um, and obviously looking at archives where they exist of children's photographs. Um, They've been rarely collected by museums because they're usually perceived to be the most incompetent of incompetent photographers, but because I like rejects, because I like <laughs> wrong photos and bad photos, it's a great um, area for me to explore. And, you know, there have been one or two famous child photographers. Jacques-Henri Lartigue is one who's very famous with a lifelong photographic practice that began when he was just sort of eight years old. Um, and then in Britain, the Cottingley fairy case where two sisters um, famously fooled, um, I don't know how, but they famously fooled very elite figures by claiming to have photographed fairies at the bottom of their garden. And it was this, um, basically they had cut out um, cardboard fairies and photographed themselves with them. And um, (laughs) Arthur Conan Doyle was saying it was, you know, evidence of spirit photography and it was something that became this kind of celebrated cause. So there's been occasional kind of famous child photographers too. So I'm sort of putting all that into a mix and somehow that'll be a book or an exhibition or maybe books. On the the innocent amateur. Yeah, (laughs) the innocent eye. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I'm looking very, very much forward to that. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts also on your passion for the reject and um, what would you suggest if someone is really interested in vernacular or in sort of your thought process what would you suggest one should read or look at or see or think about maybe the more than the snapshot book is a, is a good way in because it's a it's a short text it's an image-based book there's um, there's an essay that's woven through the images of eight to 10,000 words, something like that. And it's got a hundred images. It tells the story visually as well as textually. Um, And it encapsulates, I think, quite a lot of the things that I'm interested in, as well as my personal collection. But um, if somebody wants to do a deep dive into my academic writing, a lot of what I've written is now open access. So if you go to my university profile, so Annabella Pollen at University of Brighton, you can find a lot of open access texts and um you know there's magazine articles as well as full text books so um that will take you <laughs> days and weeks if not months <laughs> to read but um yeah there's there's plenty there that um you know for people to browse if they want to find out more wonderful we'll add links to all of that in our text section of Thank the podcast you. This was Annabella Pollen, a professor on visual culture and author of several fascinating books a collector as well, and a thinker. She definitely made me think 
how I should study more everyday products of consumption and their subliminal messages that enforce stereotypes and norms. And with that, I don't mean to look for what the product is selling, like tasty chocolate, but what the brands are using to advertise that tasty chocolate. And I think ephemera, packaging, things that change quite quickly and things that are meant to just serve a kind of functional purpose rather than be made for historical posterity, have that kind of cultural um, moment inscripted in them really kind of clearly and deeply. I think I'm going to do a walk in the supermarket right now and read for an hour product pictures. That should give me a lesson on the norms of today. And also to study how products jump onto forms of communication that are supposed to make the product more appealing to our time. With that I mean, for example, inclusiveness and multiculturalism. I can buy a Norwegian salmon that is consumed by a multi-ethnic group in the advert. Clearly that is using the current discussion on inclusion rather than telling me anything about the quality of that possibly farmed and artificially colored product. I guess we stop here as that would require a whole nother episode. Thank you for listening to The Photovolt. Find out more on Annabella Pollen and the books, adverts and podcasts we mentioned in this episode in our text section. Lukas Birk says goodbye.